Our scripture lesson today comes from the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 14, verse 13. Let's share in God's good word together. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. When is the last time you gave someone your full, undivided attention? In the age of smartphones, the ability to resist distraction may be the single most important career skill in the marketplace. It is interesting to me that some of the world's leading CEOs are known for their ability to embrace silence and limit distraction in both the boardroom and their personal lives. Perhaps we know of their ability for long silences because it is so rare. They know that attention is our most precious commodity. Perhaps they also know that our life is defined by what we pay attention to. But silence is hard. Silence confronts us. Silence confronts us with who we really are. And many of us are willing to do almost anything to avoid knowing that reality. Enter the smartphone and welcome to the pandemic of distraction. Justin Early in his book, The Common Rule, Ask a haunting question. Am I too distracted to actually serve my neighbor, love my neighbor? There's no love of neighbor outside of paying attention to neighbor. And there's no paying attention to neighbor if I answer the phone instead of to God. So today, I hope to help us move from a life of loneliness, even in a crowd, to a life of connectedness and purpose with two simple habits. Let's get started. We are in week five of our sermon series, Surviving the Pandemic, Ancient Practices for a New Normal. And each week we look at a daily habit and a weekly habit, because what we're trying to do is develop a common rule of life that we live out together as a community of faith. It's meant to help you, to connect you to God and to others. It's the great commandment, love of God, love of neighbor. That's what we're doing. So this week we'll come to our third daily habit and our third weekly habit. It's just that simple. So As a reminder where we've been, here are our daily habits. Number one, kneeling prayer, morning, noon, and night. How's that going for you? Well, for me, it's been kind of difficult. I like to pray in the morning before I get out of bed because it's warmer under the covers these days. But when I get on my knees, it's better. At noon, I don't really want to kneel right in the middle of the office, so I'll walk over to the window and you know, look out and thank God for the day, or maybe I'll kneel down by my chair and ask God for help with the sermon or whatever it is, and then in the evening, kneeling again by my bed. When I do it, it's better. I hope it's going well for you, too. The second thing is to eat one meal with others every day. That's been a great blessing to me over the last couple of weeks. And so as I'm connecting with God morning, noon, and night, and I'm connecting with others at least one meal a day, that's going really well. I hope it's going well for you too. And then thirdly today, this is a big one, turn your phone off for one hour. And so every family be a little different, depends on your work schedule, who you really want to be connected to, who you want to be fully present to. If that's your family, uh, then you probably ought to do that at home. Um, If you want that to be with God, then you probably ought to do that in silence. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Then on our weekly habits, number one, Have a one-hour conversation with a friend. That is life-giving. It helps you connect to God and one another. And you want to ask the question, is there anything you haven't told me? 
That's a great question for really good friends. And I want to thank my friend Scott Augusta for calling me up and checking on me after he heard this sermon. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for being a good friend. And that's the way you do it. Just check in, have a conversation with your friend. Last week, we talked about limiting media to four hours, choosing wise content, justice, beauty, and community. There's nothing sacred about that four-hour limit, but if you'll look at what you've been doing and then try to trim that back, it'll really help you. Four hours uh, is really good because it's about 30 minutes a day. And so you might think about what is the best content I could put in my soul each and every day. Uh, last week, we, we learned that it's really good to ask those questions in community, to actually receive your media with someone else. It helps you choose more wisely. And then today, I want to invite you to fast from something for 24 hours. Uh, as Miss Megan said to the kids, that might be candy. Uh, it might be screen time. But if there's something that you know is causing a problem in your life, it's probably a good idea to talk to God about it and see if you couldn't live without that for 24 hours. I bet you can. And so we're going to get started around that. So with fasting and checking our phones, I want to go back to the wisdom literature of Blaise Pascal back in the 1600s. He said this, All of man's problems stem from his inability to sit quietly in a room alone. Friends, we are terrified of seeing ourselves clearly. We are people who blame, who push off, who shame, who try to do anything other than own what is true about us. And we don't have to be afraid. God is with us. God loves us. And we can share those things with Jesus. And Jesus will take them. And he will lift us up and he will forgive us and give us new life. Christianity is unlike any other religion in the world. It is not about being good enough. It is about Jesus who has come to save us. We can depend on him. So we don't have to be afraid of ourselves. We don't have to be afraid of the silence because in our silence we find we are never alone. We are surrounded by love, the very love of God. So our struggle is this. When we try to be two places at once, we are no place at all. And you know this to be true. You've had a friend or colleague or loved one sit right across from you and you're pouring your heart out to them and they are scrolling. You're trying to tell them a joke or connect with them in some way and they are being notified, ripped away from the conversation, from the connection that God wants us to have. And so we think in our smartphones, oh, well, I can do that. I can be there and here at the same time. But when you do that, you're really no place at all. So when we try to use our smartphones... To multiply our presence, it often brings absence, and that absence harms. Just think about that in your own life. So what, what does this look like? You're like, well, that really, does it bring harm? Well, I don't know. You, you think about it. You think about your family system. Have you ever decided that you were going to take a vacation? And so you load everybody up, you pack everything up in, in your car or your truck, and you drive, you know, hour after hour after hour after hour, state after state after state, and you finally get to the beach or you finally get to the mountains. And then right when you pull in and everything's there, you say, oh, hold on, I just have to check a few things. I'll be right back. And while your wife or your husband or your children, they play, you're working. You're completely pulled out of everything you've been working for for days. And the very thing that you spent all that time, energy, and money to enjoy, you're not receiving, and you're not sharing in, and you're not giving. Working during vacation. That might be a problem for you. 
or maybe taking a call while playing with your kids or watching their game. Friends, last time I went to a soccer match, I saw more parents watching their phone than watching their kid. You got to ask yourself, why be there if you're not going to watch? These are real temptations, real distractions. And the people distracting you on your phone do not have your best interest at heart. And they don't have your family's best interest at heart. Now, I want to just say that I had never struggled with this at all because email was not a thing when Chantel and I were dating. But I'm told some people check their email on a date. That you're actually at dinner, you're waiting for it to come. And rather than being present for the person that you are trying to connect with, you're actually checking your email on your phone in the middle of a date. Unfortunately, this is one that I've seen more often. And that is that people post about a conflict online very publicly instead of taking care of it personally, one-on-one. It's really hard to reconcile with someone you're not talking to. It's really hard to reconcile and make better a relationship that's broken or harmed or in trouble by posting about it uh, on social media. Posting a conflict instead of talking to someone about it. If you are falling into these patterns, you might want to check your smartphone. It might not be a smartphone. It might be another kind of phone. And here's the reality, friends, and you know this to be true. Just because you're home doesn't mean you're present. We have to be truly present, intentional about our presence to God and to one another, particularly to our families. And because that's true, I want to challenge you right now, at this very moment, right in this very second, to turn your phone off. Now, just turn it off. I know some of you are like, what? Really, the sermon will not be more than about 20 more minutes. Tops. Now you're timing me. I know. But just turn your phone off. And I promise you, you will be okay to turn it back on at the end of worship. And I know some of you told me online worship doesn't really work for me because I'm distracted by my phone. Turn it off. It's that simple. Whether you're in worship or whether you're at home, you can turn it off to spend an hour with God in your community. You can do it. I'm cheering you on. You can do it. Now that your phone is off, you might notice a weird feeling inside. It might be loneliness. Maybe for you, it's more like panic. Who might try to call me in the next hour? What if they're dead in a ditch? Friends, if they're dead in a ditch, they won't call you. Just kidding. They won't, but just kidding, really. So we really do feel these feelings of anxiety and dread. And when we turn off our phones and when we can't be reached, it can be scary because we have forgotten that we are never really alone. We're not. God is with us. That's the gift of Jesus, Emmanuel. We can be without a phone and still in God's good and loving care. And it's important that we turn the phones off so we can be turned on to what God is doing. Nature, the Holy Spirit, the peace that passes all understanding that can't. And won't come from your phone. The goal is to regularly cut off the ability to be reached by everyone and anyone so that in those limits we can be fully present to someone. So how did Jesus live this out? I know Jesus didn't have a smartphone, but he did have some incredible, incredible responsibilities and incredible pressures that you and I will never fully know. We can read about them in the Bible, but I, I want to take us back to this 
scripture that we started with in Matthew 14 today because I want you to see how very difficult it was, the life that Jesus was living. So, what Jesus did, he was always seeking out solitary places as a regular practice. That's what he did. He would go and pray, and then he would go and do ministry, and then he would retreat, and he would pray. He would be connected with God, so he'd have power to share with others. So our scripture is this from Matthew 14. Now, when Jesus heard this, well, what did he hear? What, what, what did he hear? When Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. What was it that he heard that he had to go away and pray? Why was he so disturbed that he couldn't be in his normal work life? Why couldn't he be in community in the same way? There was something troubling him. What did he hear? It was about his cousin John, the one that had baptized him, the one that had leapt in his mother's womb when both Mary and Elizabeth were together. It was this family member, the one that he loved deeply, that had been murdered. And not just murdered, but murdered by the government, murdered by the state. Jesus' cousin John had been murdered by the government. The scripture says earlier in chapter 14 that Herod had arrested John. He had bound him and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been telling him he was being honest and true that it's not lawful for you to have her. And though Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded him as a prophet. They thought of John the Baptist as the great prophet. So when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company, and she pleased Herod so much that he promised on oath to grant her whatever she might ask. Now that's dumb, friends. Never promise a teenage girl whatever she asks, because you don't know what she's going to ask for. Well, that certainly came out to be true, because prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. You see, the king cared more about what others thought than about what was right. The king cared more about what other people thought than what was right. And social media will do that to you, friends, if you're not careful. You'll feel pressure. Other people are watching. You've said something publicly. Now you don't know how to take it back. You know what's wrong, but you don't know how to get that unwound. You have to have a deeper life, one connected to God, one connected to rightness and justice and peace and mercy and grace. Now, the scripture says the king was grieved. He was grieved. He was troubled, but he didn't have the foundation to change it. The king was grieved, yet out of regard for his oaths and for the guest, he commanded to be given, and he sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And the head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. How gruesome. Who brought it to her mother. And this news was brought to Jesus. And even in his grief, he showed compassion. Even at one of the lowest moments of his life where he lost his cousin to violence. The scripture says that he responds to those in need, even in that time. It's remarkable. His disciples, John's disciples, came and took the body of John and buried it. And then they went and they told Jesus. That's what he had heard, that his cousin had been killed. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew. Of course he did. He was shocked and hurt. And dismayed. So he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself to reconnect with the Spirit of God, to to talk to his Father, God the Father, and to be a person of prayer and in rootedness and to get himself together and to know and to commune with God the Father. And when the crowds heard it, did they leave him alone and let him grieve? Oh no. 
They followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and Jesus had compassion for them. He had compassion for them. His heart broke for them. And he cured their sick. He didn't give them an aspirin. Jesus' presence actually came and healed them and made them whole. And after this long day of ministry, of healing and blessing and praying and helping, the disciples, his co-workers, they come to him and they complain of all things. They, they ought to be lifting him up. They ought to be saying, hey, Jesus, how can we help you? We know that John was just killed. What, what is it? How do we comfort you in this thing? No, no, no. They say, boss, it's been a long day. They come to him at the end of the day and they complain. Scripture lays it right out. It's all still there in chapter 14. It says, When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and the hour is now late. Come on, Jesus. Send the crowds away so that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. We know they're hungry. They can go, they can go do that. We don't need to do that anymore. We've done our part. Send them away. And look what Jesus does. He sees the need, and he doesn't blow it off. He actually delegates responsibility. He blesses the people. And he seeks solitude again to reconnect with the Father, to be in prayer, not distracted, but grounded. Jesus said to them, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. Don't come and complain to me. You give them something to eat. You can do this. He's delegating. Then they replied, we have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves. Even after the murder of his cousin John, he's giving thanks to God for the food and blessing it. And a miracle happens. So often when we come to this text, we just, we get all consumed with the bread and the fish. Friends, it's a much deeper story than that. Jesus is doing ministry and loving and caring and showing compassion in the hardest of times. And we can too when he comes to live in us. But we can't do it distracted. And we can't do it trying to serve a hundred different ways in a hundred different places. So after Jesus blesses and breaks the bread, he gives it to his disciples. And the disciples give it to the crowds. And all ate and were filled. And they took up what was left over of the broken pieces. They had 12 baskets full. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. And immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, what does he do? He went up the mountain by himself to pray. He's back to solitude. He's shutting off the smartphone. He's getting time with God. He's getting renewed, recreated. It is recreation time. When evening came, he was there alone in silence and solitude. The very foundational discipline of the Christian faith. To hear from God. To rest, to be quiet, and to listen for the very voice of God. When the voice of God comes to you, it changes everything. So, let me share with you how we're going to do this. What can we do? That's what Jesus did. What do we do? Well, we can say a partial no to many different things so that we can say a full yes to one. An audience of one is what we live for, for God. So we can say no to all the distractions that are on our phone. We can say no to all the distractions around us with work and say yes to God. So, we can turn off our phone for one hour. We can 
Turn off your phone for an hour at home to say yes to your family. If you really want to say yes to your family, you have to be able to say no to everybody else sometimes. Maybe that's 6.30 to 7.30, right after dinner, you can have a little family time. And you can say this, look, if you need me, if it's an emergency, I'll call you back after I get my kids to bed. I'm happy to call you at 9 or 10 or 11 o'clock at night before I go to bed. But 6.30, 7.30, while my kids are still awake, I'm going to be there for them. I'll be there for you if you need me to be after that. You can do that. You might decide that your hour that you're going to turn off your phone, uh, you're going to do that at work, actually. And you're going to say yes to your best focused productivity. You know, one of the things I've noticed in the last decade of work is that some things that I would ask for or that I could do myself in an afternoon, I'm watching it take three and four days now because nobody can find uninterrupted time. It's either their phone or a colleague uh, or screen time or something else that interrupts the flow of their work. It's amazing what you can get done with uninterrupted time. So maybe you want to turn your phone off for an hour at work and actually get some excellent work done for God, for yourself, for the world, for your family. Or maybe you decide that your hour is going to be turned off. You're going to turn that phone off for God. You're going to say no to the world so you can say yes to God. You're going to turn your phone off so that you can actually live and celebrate, take a walk in your neighborhood or in a park, and just enjoy God's creation. Say yes to God by turning off your phone for an hour. And maybe if you're super brave, you'll turn off your phone three hours, one for your family, one for your work, and one for God. Now that would be a good day. So what could we do weekly? Well, I want to invite you that from sundown to sundown, pick one thing to fast from. Might be food, uh, it might be screen time, but it might be something else too. So we replace what you're giving up with time to talk with God and to listen to your body. So that when I give up lunch and I'm out walking around the church parking lot and I'm praying for you and, and thanking God for all that God has done here, I'm listening to my body. And sometimes my body says, I'm tired. Uh, or my body says, I'm, you know, you need to stretch. Or whatever it is that my body's saying. Because here's the wonderful thing about fasting. Richard Foster has this right. He says this. Fasting reveals what controls us. So, so often when you're fasting, what comes to mind are things that really have been controlling us when we're on autopilot. So those are really good things to know. That's a way to become self-aware. So I want to recommend fasting to you. So our action steps for this week. Here they are. This week, try turning your phone off daily at home so you can be really present with your family or at work so you can really give your work your best or for silence so you can say yes to God. So that's your first action step uh, of your daily. Um, back in 2009, I came across an author, Catherine Marshall, and I want to share with you um, something that was shared with me. Um, I think it's really cool, and I think it's really needed in our world right now. Catherine Marshall, in her journal, wrote, One morning last week, God gave me an assignment. For one day, I was to go on a fast from criticism. Really, I was not to criticize anybody about anything. Catherine objected at first, but the Lord said again, Just obey me without questioning an absolute fast on any critical statements for this day. And she writes, 
For the first half of the day, I simply felt a void, almost as if I had been wiped out as a person. This was especially true at lunch with my husband, my mother, my son, and my secretary all present. Several topics came up, school prayer, abortion, the ERA amendment, about which I had definite opinions. I listened to the others and kept silent. Barbed comments on the tip of my tongue about certain world leaders. They were all suppressed. In our talkative family, no one seemed to notice, she writes. And then she said this, I noticed that my comments were not missed. The federal government, the judicial system, and the institutional church could apparently get along fine without my penetrating observations. But still, I didn't see what this fast on criticism was accomplishing until mid-afternoon. And then she writes that she began to experience joy, real, true joy, over revelations that God was beginning to give her about how to pray for a friend. Marshall writes, Ideas began to flow in a way I had not experienced in years. And now it was apparent what the Lord wanted me to see. I want you to see this word for word. She writes, My critical nature had not corrected a single one of the multitudinous things I found fault with. What it had done was to stifle my own creativity in prayer, in relationships, perhaps even in writing, ideas that God wanted to give to me. What God is showing me so far can be summed up as follows. Number one, a critical spirit focuses us on ourselves and makes us unhappy. We lose perspective and humor. Number two, a critical spirit blocks the positive creative thoughts God longs to give us. And three, a critical spirit can prevent good relationships between individuals and often produces retaliatory criticalness. Friends, I hope you'll join me this week in a 24-hour fast from saying anything critical about anybody or anything. Good luck. It's not the way our culture lives, but friends, we are to be light in the darkness, peace in the chaos, joy in the confusion and hurts of this world. I hope you'll join me. Let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.